Well, if you will, turn in your copy of God's Word to Hebrews chapter 9 this morning. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you can reach in the pew rack there in front of you. Uh, we'll be walking through Hebrews 9 verses 1 through 10. If you've been with us recently, you know we've been walking through the book of Hebrews. And the writer of Hebrews has been making it very clear in recent chapters uh, that Jesus is better, that he's uh, a better priest. He's our great high priest. He offers us a better hope. Uh, last Lord's Day, we looked at how he offers us a better covenant. As Madison mentioned there earlier in the service, we see in the scripture an old covenant and a new covenant. And the new covenant uh, is made available to us uh, in and through Jesus Christ. And so the writer of Hebrews has been looking back in order to help us look ahead. He's been showing us uh, where the old covenant fell short so that we can fully appreciate what it is Christ offers us in the new covenant. And he'll continue to do that in today's text by calling our attention again uh, to the place of worship in the Old Covenant, to the tabernacle, and how that pointed us forward to Jesus. And so today we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 10, and out of reverence for God's Word, if you're able to, if you would stand together. Uh, we stand because this is God's holy Word to us. So often we hear people today say they wish that God would just speak. Well, He has. And it's time for us to listen. And so this is what God says to His church today. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, the reminder, the writer calls our attention back to the Old Covenant and says this, Now even if the first covenant had, regula even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place for holiness, for a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was the golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes and he but once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. You will pray with me. Father God, we come to Your Word with the understanding that all Scripture is inspired and, and every word of Your Word has meaning and relevance for us to yet today. And yet, as we come to this section in Hebrews, we come back to a place that may be unfamiliar to many of us. We don't worship in the tabernacle or the temple today. We, we don't have the things mentioned in this text, this can seem to be something we don't relate to or, or perhaps it's not necessary for us to understand. 
And yet, Lord, this is Your Word given to Your church for us to grow and learn from. So help us to do those very things today. And help us to see in this text how it points us to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. God's Word tells us in Genesis chapter 1 that God created man in His own image. That God is the initiator. God is the creator and He has created us in His image. And as we walk through the Word of God, we see that God created man in His image for His glory. That we exist to bring glory to God. We exist to worship God. We are created in the image of God. But what we find throughout civilizations throughout history what we see even in our own culture today is that rather than respond to this truth and acknowledge that we have indeed been created in the image of God what we see so often is man seeks to create God in his own image and we saw this in the ancient Egyptians that we've studied in God's word where we see that the Egyptians fashioned gods after animals and after creatures we see among the Romans and the Greeks, how they would fashion gods after their own emotions and after nature and after human emotions and experiences. We see even in our culture today that when people talk of God, they often talk of a God of their own creation. And so many times people will define God in terms of themselves. They'll talk about how we'll you know, God would never condemn this behavior because I don't think this behavior's wrong. Therefore, God must not think it's wrong. They define God in terms of their own desires. I was created a certain way with certain desires, and because I desire these things, well, they, they must be okay because I have this desire. Therefore, God must think this is okay. And rather than look to God's Word, which defines for us, who God is, we look to ourselves. And so often we do the same thing with worship. And when we consider what it means to truly worship God, we often think of it from a very man-centered perspective. We think about our preferences and our likes and, and what we like to sing or how we like to sing or what we like to do when we worship. And we define worship in terms of us primarily. That's why you often hear people talk about churches and say, well, I used to go to that church, but honestly, I just didn't get much out of the worship. So I started going to this church, and now I get so much more out of it. And these are common phrases, but what they reveal to us is that perhaps we're approaching worship in the wrong way. I mean, we should get something from worship. God has called us to draw near to Him. We should learn more about the holy character of God. We should learn more about the gospel through worship. There's much we should receive, but worship primarily is to give glory to God. It's not foundationally about what you get. It's about what God receives. And this too challenges us to the core because we are so apt to think about things from our perspective rather than consider what has God instructed us and we're reminded of these things as we come to Hebrews chapter 9 where the writer takes us back to the old covenant tabernacle and in doing that 
He teaches us much about worship. He teaches us about what God gave to His people, what instruction He gave to them, and how that was to allow them to worship Him, but more importantly, how it was to point towards the day of Christ's coming when they could truly worship God in spirit and in truth. And so we're going to walk through this text today, and as we do, I pray that we will learn some things about worship and about what God has called us to, beginning there with the first point in your outline. This reminder that God desires worship from us. God desires worship from us. Verse 1, the writer says, now even the first covenant, referring back to this old covenant, that covenant that God established with the people through Moses who mediated that covenant, that covenant that the writer of Hebrews said was insufficient, that could not fully save us, that covenant that was easily broken by the faithlessness of the Israelites. He says even that covenant had regulations for worship. That God has always taught His people how to worship Him because God desires His people to worship Him. So we see the first sanctuary, the first worship there in the garden where God creates Adam and Eve for His glory to worship Him. We see how that worship and that relationship and that fellowship is severed and broken because of their sin. But God continues to provide a way for His people to worship Him. He gives instruction to Abraham and to Moses. He gives instruction to His people. And throughout these instructions, we see God's desire. God desires us to worship Him. This is throughout the Scripture. Particularly, we see this in the Psalms, where the psalmist tells us in Psalm 22, verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Psalm 29, verse 2, ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in splendor of holiness. Psalm 86, verse 9, All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. Psalm 95, verse 6, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Over and over and over, we see this command in God's Word to worship Him. And here the writer is pointing us back to the Old Covenant to remind us that this is our call. We're called to worship God. We're called to draw near to God. This is why the writer of Hebrews mentions this repeatedly in this letter that we've been studying. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, he says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 7.19, he says that Christ is our better hope through whom we draw near to God. And then in verse 25, he said God is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. God desires that we worship Him. And here we're reminded in verse 1 that He provided this opportunity for worship to His people through the tabernacle, through this earthly place of holiness and not only did he provide it but he gave great details in regards of it which brings us to that second point god is particular about how we worship him he's very particular he gives specific instructions so god has not just left it up to us to decide how we're going to worship him but think about again how often we talk that way 
well, I just like to go to this place and do this thing because that's where I can worship God the most. That's where I can worship God the best. Well, I just like to do this. I just like to sing this. I just like this style. We, We talk about worship as something that we define, and yet we're reminded in God's Word that He defines how we are to worship Him. And in the Old Covenant, He gave the instructions for the tabernacle so that His people could rightly worship Him. But remember, that's not what they were asking for. When we study the book of Exodus, we find the Israelites were enslaved to the Egyptians. And when they were enslaved to the Egyptians, they cry out to God. And God says He hears their cry and He answers their cry. But do you remember what that cry was? That the people were not crying out to God God, I just want to come to the garden alone while there's still dew on the roses. That they were not crying out to God, Lord, I need You, Lord, I need You, every hour I need You. They were crying out to God, God, get us out of here. They wanted rescue and they wanted deliverance. But there's no indication that they were desiring to draw near to God and to worship Him. In fact, we see that God is the one who dictates that. God is the one who tells Moses, go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go that they might go to the wilderness and serve me and worship me. And so the people weren't coming to God with this idea of, Lord, if You just deliver us, then we can rightly worship You. And if You just help us understand how we can do this, we want to draw near to You. No, they just wanted to get away from the Egyptians. They weren't looking to get closer to God. Side note, that's often what we do as well. We're very apt to cry out to God, God, get me out of this, rather than God, I want to be closer to You. We see God as the one who can rescue us and deliver us, but so often the desire of our heart is not to draw near to Him. But notice what God does in His grace. He knows that we need to draw near to Him. He he desires that we draw near to Him, so He gives us very particular instructions and details about how we can draw near to Him. He, He did that with the Israelites, as he led them then on the Exodus, he gave instruction to Moses on the mountain to give to the people. He told them how he wanted to be worshipped. He gave instructions. And here we're reminded that those instructions were for the tabernacle. The writer here takes us back to that. He talks about the holy place in verse 2. You'll remember from those instructions that the tabernacle was something that could be put up there where the people encamped and there was an outer wall and inside of the tabernacle then where sacrifices were made and there was an altar of sacrifice, you had then a holy place and a most holy place. And these were places and they had things in them that signified what it meant to worship God. For example, the writer reminds us in verse 2 there was a lampstand. Now this was made out of gold. It would provide light to the tabernacle. The priests would keep it lit continually. It was a reminder to the people and teaching them that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. It would point us forward to Jesus Christ who's the light of the world. The light shines in the darkness. It exposes it. There in the holy place was, the writer reminds us in verse 2, the table and the bread of presence. This was a wooden table overlaid in gold. On it was the bread of presence which were 12 loaves of flat bread that symbolized the 12 tribes of Israel. It was a reminder daily as it was there that God was the provider for His people. 
It spoke to the provision that God gave to His people when they were wandering through the wilderness. And God literally brought manna down from heaven for them. It too pointed forward to Jesus who is the bread of life. That reminder we have every time we come to the Lord's table together. That this is His body that was broken for us. The writer then teaches us and reminds us about the most holy place. He says, verse 4, that's where there was the golden altar of incense. The priest would light this and it would stay continually burning morning and evening. It was there that we find the Ark of the Covenant. We've talked much about this in the past. This was God's throne. It was in this Ark that the writer reminds us the Ten Commandments were there, a pot with manna, Aaron's rod that budded, these reminders of God's provision and God's providence, and God's rule, and God's law. And this ark was holy. It was not to be touched by human hands. It had two poles that would go in on either side, and then it would be carried by those poles. It represented the glory and the uh, holiness of God. And on top of it, there was the mercy seat where the blood of the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement would be sprinkled. All of these things were symbolic of God's presence among his people. They were pictures of His presence and of His provision. And everything about it pointed forward to Jesus Christ. And so it's important for us to understand these things. We're not under the old covenant. We don't come into a tabernacle. We don't have a high priest go on our behalf to offer a sacrifice. Our covenant has changed, but our God has not. And just as God desired His people to worship Him then, God desires us to worship Him now. And just as He gave biblical principles then, He gives us biblical principles now. And just as He taught about His holiness and our sinfulness then, He teaches us about His holiness and our sinfulness now. And that's what biblical worship should do. There are so many things contained in that phrase, biblical worship, that it's pretty clear it should be worship that's biblical. And so as we consider how it is we worship God, we should first and foremost consider what does God's Word teach us about worship? And we can learn from the Old Covenant and the tabernacle things that were there that continue to be a need today in our worship. Not the table of the bread and not the mercy seat, but, but what these things symbolized and what they pointed towards. And so that's what we'll spend the remainder of our time considering this morning as we look at this third point. A biblical worship teaches us about God's holiness and our sin. It teaches us about God's holiness and our sin. And so everything about the tabernacle taught these things. There was this reminder of, to God's people that as they looked on the tabernacle, that they were separated from God. And they were separated because God was holy, pure, without blemish. And they were not. They were sinful. And so there was a separation there. Now the people, when they would travel and set up their camp, they would set up the tabernacle in the very middle of the camp, and then they would orientate their tents around the tabernacle so that the opening of their tent faced the tabernacle. And this was intentional. So that every morning when the Israelites got up when they were in camp, they would walk out of the tent, and the first thing they would look upon and gaze upon was that tabernacle at a distance. And before they would go back into their tent at night, they would look and they would gaze upon that tabernacle. And as they did that, they were reminded that God was holy, that God was separated, and yet that God was there dwelling among them. 
that he desired to have fellowship with them. That he desired to be worshipped by them. But that their sin created a separation between them and God. And notice the way that sin is spoken of here. In verse 7, the writer here refers to this sacrifice, this blood, that was for the unintentional sins of the people. And that might be an unfamiliar phrase to you, so I want to take a second to look at that because the writer of Hebrews talks about two types of sin in Hebrews 9 and 10. And here in chapter 9, he talks about unintentional sin. And then in verse 10, he ta- in chapter 10, he talks about deliberate sins. And so you can probably figure out what these things are pretty quickly. Deliberate sins are those things you do deliberately, knowingly. You, you know it's wrong and you still do it. It's a violation of God's command. He says, don't do this, and you do it deliberately. Or, we even read in James chapter 5, there are times when God says to do something and you don't do it. Well, that's a deliberate sin as well. A deliberate sin is when you intentionally sin. You voluntarily sin. God says, don't do it, and you do it. God says, do it, and you don't. But here he mentions this other category of unintentional sins. And these are involuntary sins. They're sins committed in ignorance. And to help kind of unpack that a little bit, I just want to share with you a quote. Uh, Dr. Jeremy Pierre from Southern Seminary says it this way. He says that Scripture speaks of involuntary sins as including three characteristics. First, they are from ignorance of God's will. Now, there are many people who are ignorant of God's will. Us in this room today, we can be ignorant of God's will. We can be ignorant of His Word. And so oftentimes, in that ignorance, then two, we sin, but not deliberately. In other words, we're not acting out in rebellion towards God. We're acting out in our ignorance. But yet, he points out, three, they're disobedient nonetheless. So the fact that you don't know something's wrong, or that you didn't mean to do something that was wrong, does not remove your guilt. And God spells this out very clearly in the Old Covenant. In fact, in Leviticus chapter 5, He gives instruction, if anyone sins doing any of the things by the Lord's commandments that ought not to be done, though He did not do it, this is still a sin. So so what's the big deal here? And This is what it is. Unintentional sins help us to understand how great a sin problem we have. Because most of us, when we think of sin categorically, we just think of deliberate sins. When we think of, you know, I, I told a lie, I know I shouldn't have, but I did it anyways. When we think of acting out in anger, I, I got so mad and got so frustrated, I did this thing, I said this thing, I know I shouldn't have, but I did it anyways. We, we think of things we deliberately do as being sin. But God's Word takes that standard and raises it to the level of His holiness and shows us, no, we fall short of God's glory by sinning unintentionally so often. By sinning in ways where we try to excuse ourselves and say, well, I didn't know or I didn't mean to. I mean, think about how often that's our response when we're confronted. And you might have had this experience this week as we had uh, Halloween and a lot of your little ones, perhaps relatives, uh, kids of relatives have been in your home and you've noticed them on a several day sugar high from all the candy that they got. Well, perhaps in your house, maybe you've got multiple children and perhaps one of those children left out an abundance of candy and just perhaps 
one of your other children came along and ate some of that candy. So let's say little Johnny comes by and eats little Jimmy's candy, and then little Jimmy gets a little upset about it and raises a ruckus and comes to you and says, Johnny ate my candy. Now what is, well, I'm confused now on who's Johnny, who's Jimmy, but anyways, the one that ate the candy that wasn't theirs, what's their response when you say something to them? Chances are it's not, oh, father, mother, grandmother, grandfather, you were so right, I'm so wrong, I repent of my sin, I shouldn't have done that. No, it's what? Well, I didn't know it was theirs. I thought it was mine. I didn't mean to do that. I just saw it there and it was mixed up with mine and I didn't mean to do it. I didn't know it was wrong. And that's what we say when we're kids. I didn't know, I didn't mean to. But that's also what we say as adults. <laughs> so often when we're confronted on sin in our life, when we're confronted by those we love, we often respond, well, I didn't mean to do that. I wasn't trying to hurt you. Well, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to do that. Or I didn't know I was supposed to do that. I didn't mean to do it. And we say these things as if they then remove the guilt from us. As if if we didn't mean it, or it happened and we weren't trying for that to happen as if somehow we're not culpable anymore. But, but even in our culture, we know that's wrong. I mean, there's reasons that we have civil laws that address, address things like involuntary manslaughter. That, that you can actually take a life without meaning to take a life. That, that your negligence can cause someone else to die. You, you didn't necessarily mean to do it. You, you didn't want to do it. But because of something you did, someone else died, and there's a consequence for that. God's standard, God's Word tells us there's a great consequence for us sinning, even when we don't mean to, even when we're not trying to. That we will not stand before God one day and say, well, well, I didn't know. I didn't mean to. In fact, we read in Romans 1 that when we stand before God, we will be without excuse we do in Romans 3 that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. We read in Isaiah 59 that our sins, our iniquities have caused a separation between us and God. We don't need a tabernacle to remind us of these things. God's Word speaks of it often. And so our sin separates us from God's holiness. And what the writer here is making clear about the tabernacle is that it taught God's people these very things. And so the writer reminds us here in verses 8, 9, and 10 that, that the tabernacle then showed God's people God had instructed them to come into His presence and yet they were hindered from coming into His presence because they couldn't just draw near to Him. It wasn't available. It was not opened, the writer tells us. Gifts and sacrifices could be offered, but the conscience was never clear. Guilt remained on sinful people, he says, until the time of reformation. Well, what is that? Well, he's going to go on to tell us about that in the coming verses. He's basically saying under this old covenant tabernacle system, this guilt remained on the people. This guilt for their deliberate sins and their unintentional sins. All this guilt remained on them until the day that Christ would come and He would atone for their sins. And that's what we're going to look at as we continue in this study. But I want to take a moment just to consider one aspect of what happened when Jesus indeed did atone for the sins of the people. The Scripture tells us that when Jesus went to the cross and when He died, 
And Matthew in his gospel in the 27th chapter says that one of the amazing events that happened then was that the veil in the temple was ripped into. Now again, God's people were still going to the temple to offer sacrifices. There were still priests actively serving there in the temple while Jesus is dying on the cross. And so just imagine for a moment what this would have been for the priests to be there in that temple and to be outside of that veil that represented the Holy of Holies, that place where the high priest could only go and then only once a year. And for them to be ministering there in the temple and then for this event to take place and the ground shakes and all of a sudden that veil is ripped in half from the top to the bottom. Now, for those of us who believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, we understand the significance of that. That now through Christ, there's no separation. That now through Christ, we can go into the holy place. That now through Christ, we can draw near to God. And what a wonderful thing that is. And so consider what it would have been for those priests who served day in and day out in the temple, who always saw this separation. Consider what it would be for them to see that temple just ripped in two. What did they do? Did they immediately run into the most holy place? Did they drop down to their knees and just worship God for allowing them now to come into His presence? I mean, up until this point, if you even tried to sneak a peek and just momentarily go through that, your life was over unless you were the high priest on the Day of Atonement. Unless you did things exactly the way God said. Imagine what it would have been for these priests now. They can enter into God's presence. Did they do that? Did they look to Calvary's Hill and consider that Jesus was indeed truly the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? No. Church tradition and church history tell us that when the curtain was torn, when the veil was ripped, their response was to sew it back up. God broke down this barrier between He and man. And what did man try to do? They tried to put the barrier back up. And friends, that is what so many do today. God made a way for His people to know Him and they rejected it. God has made a way for you today to know Him and to dwell with Him and enter into perfect fellowship with Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. Do not make the mistake that the priests made of old. Don't reject it. He has given it freely to us. Why would we ever want to sew the curtain back up. The writer of Hebrews here is speaking to a group of people who are tempted to do that very thing. People who've experienced the grace of God through Jesus and they're considering going right back to their old covenant Judaism. And your temptation today might not be to sew a curtain and to go back to these tabernacle temple regulations, but your temptation today might be to fall back on your flesh to fall back on your merit, to fall back on your attempts to earn righteousness before a holy God. And God's Word says there is a better way. The veil has been removed. Christ has paid the debt. And the invitation for you is to draw near to God through the blood of Jesus Christ because that's the only thing that can and will 
ever save you from the wrath that you deserve from God because of your sin. You might think that you're pretty good. Maybe your list of deliberate sins has gotten shorter over the years. But know this, we sin unintentionally all the time and we are guilty before God because of those sins. But Christ has paid our debt in full. Why would we not respond to that free offer of grace? And so we want to give a moment today, an opportunity today to do that very thing. We're going to sing a hymn that's familiar to many of you, Amazing Grace. And this is a hymn that is the testimony of one who responded to the grace of God when they realized that the veil had been torn, when they realized what it meant that Jesus had died for them. And so I just want you to take a moment before we sing Amazing Grace to consider, have you truly realized the call of the gospel in your life? I know that many of you have been in this church for much longer than I've been in this church. I know some of you have spent decades of your life, some of you most of your life here. I know you've heard a whole lot of sermons and you've had a whole lot of invitations. But I want to ask you this morning, have you truly responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ through faith and repentance? Have you turned and placed your trust not in part, but in whole in Jesus? Do you know that He is the atoning sacrifice for your sin? Have you cried out to God for deliverance? And have you received it through Jesus Christ? And is there fruit of that repentance and deliverance in your life? Is your life different today than it was before you called out to Jesus. And if it's not, then maybe what you did is you were just asking God to get you out of a situation like the Hebrews of old were, but you weren't really asking God to draw you closer to Him. But He desires to have fellowship with you. He desires to be worshipped by you. And that begins by truly trusting in Jesus.